appreciate so much the invitation this weekend. It's been uh, quite nice. Very kind of you uh, to have me and my son here. and Everybody's been so complimentary. It's really... Uh, Makes me feel right at home. I know we've got uh, visitors here from other churches, uh, maybe not as many as we've had uh, in the weekend, but appreciate your uh, sticking with it and uh, and being here uh, for uh, part or some of the meeting. Um, uh, it's a strange thing. I, I noticed a long time ago, um, I'd go to, uh, I just loved coming to meetings like this when I was a kid and I noticed I started noticing a theme uh in the preaching back when I was a child. It was a lot of uh, a lot of what we call doctrine. And uh and so uh, you know as it grew and uh started into the ministry myself, um it kind of the trend kind of changed and I started noticing there was a lot of practical uh, godliness being preached, and I missed the doctrine. You know, I missed hearing about salvation by grace, and um, and so I, I, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. You understand, God doesn't pour into our mind what He wants us to say and open our mouths. We have some discretion about what we're going to say and how we're going to say it. I hope we do. Uh, if you don't, then you can't be held responsible for what you say up here. We're just robots. Uh, so you do have some discretion. And I say that to say this, that I, it's been a confusing weekend to me because for a long, long time, I just determined that uh, I was going to let the pastors talk to their churches about about practical godliness. That wasn't any of my business. And if I ever went to speak to strangers or in a strange place that I wasn't a pastor, I'd speak to them primarily about the Lord. Uh, if the Lord would direct Jesus, uh, and then second, if if there was any time left in the weekend, I'd maybe talk to him about salvation and, and how that happened. Um, but this weekend's been kind of practical. Uh, I, I didn't and I didn't mean for it to be that way, but it just seems like maybe that's where uh, the Lord's leading, and that's what you needed to hear. And uh, I, I told somebody earlier, it's usually better when you listen to the Lord uh, than when you don't. It works out for everybody. Uh, so I've just been trying to follow his direction this weekend, and uh, I'll do that this afternoon. Uh, one time I heard this preacher, he was it was at a night service, uh, and forgive me if I'm stepping on any toes. I don't mean to. It's just my way. I just got to come and it's just got to be myself, but I'm just kind of a matter-of-fact kind of person. I, I don't try to keep up any kind of image or anything like that. I think that's silly. I just kind of trying to tell it the way I see it. And I remember one meeting we were at, uh, there was a there was a preacher that everybody, I mean everybody wanted to hear this preacher speak. He was he's pretty well known. And well known not because he's well known, well known for uh his study, well known for his consistent blessing. The Lord just consistently blesses him every time he preaches. And so everybody's really, really uh hoping to get to hear him. And uh the moderator of the meeting put like three preachers in front of him. And uh, by the time it got to his turn, everybody was just worn out. We'd been there for two hours, you know. Uh, and each one of those guys took like 45 minutes apiece. And so it's it quite a long, lengthy uh, church service. And it was hot. And the babies were crying. And everybody was hungry. And I remember he was so lovely. He, he got up and he said, I know everybody's tired. I'm tired. 
uh, God bless you all. And he sat down and I thought, that's no, <laughs> but, but they did let him speak the next day. So you can't tell it all in one sermon anyway. So what I'm telling you is I know that it's the afternoon. We've had a belly full of food. I know that uh, some of you have a long way to go, and so do I, so we won't dawdle. Um, in Acts chapter 2, we uh, after the day of Pentecost, I won't uh, belabor that. I'll just go back to read it for yourself. Amazing things happened that day. And um, the apostles were preaching, and the people that heard the preaching wanted to know what to do about it. And uh, they commanded them to be uh, baptized, to repent and to be baptized. They did, and, um, and part of that, he says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. The word untoward means crooked, and um, we're living in a untoward generation if you're paying attention at all to what's going on around you. And I think about, this is a, maybe a good explanation for you young people that are uh, trying to parse out which saved and what does that mean in the Bible? Does it always mean eternal salvation? This is a great example of one of those verses that does not mean eternal salvation. This is one of those verses that's very easy to explain why it's not eternal salvation. He said, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And the saving, the salvation would come through repentance and baptism. Um, now, repentance, of course, stop acting like you uh, behaved before you knew the truth. When you know the truth, when you know about Jesus and when you know about the church and godly living, you're no longer uh, have the excuse to say that I was ignorant. I didn't know any better. Now, you know better, so you should do better. And in doing better, the first step of doing better is to be baptized, publicly confess your faith in Jesus and be baptized. And uh, let me tell you how it saves you. Uh, when there's a little kid who's uh, maybe his name is John Mizell, and he's <laughs> and he's uh, running around with some characters in his neighborhood who used to break into houses and steal things off of people's cars and maybe uh, shoplift things from convenience stores. Maybe he's baptized and he thinks to himself, you know, if the people at church ever found out about this, that wouldn't be such a good thing. That would, that would, that I'd be ashamed to tell them. I'd be ashamed for them to know. You know what, fellas? Y'all go ahead. I'm not going to do that. And if he hadn't been baptized and he hadn't had that in his life, then he probably wouldn't be standing here now because he probably would have given in to some things. In other words, it was a great restraining force in the life of a young man that wouldn't have been there had he not said, no, I'm going to be baptized. I believe exactly what that preacher is saying. And I want to be baptized and be part of the church. Part of the, being part of the church will save you a lot from a, a lot of ungodly influence and perhaps some ungodly behavior that you don't need to be involved in. So that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, come out from among the world. Join, uh, join these people that believe like you do. Walk with them and walk in the direction that they're going in. Help each other in that walk. Uh, and then he says, they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same were added unto them, about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. I'd like to talk to you this afternoon about four modes of New Testament worship, Mo four modes of 
of biblically acceptable New Testament worship. So first of all, I'd like to just talk about, we, we've mentioned several of these through the courses of the message this weekend, but the first one I'd like to talk to you about is prayer, public prayer. You will notice in Primitive Baptist churches that we still lift up each other in prayer. Yesterday, I thought it was so refreshing, Brother Philip stopped what we were doing in the middle of the song service and asked specifically for prayer for a specific need that was here at the church. And I felt like we all lifted uh, that young man's name up to the Lord. Do you know that I was reading a, a blog post? You know, that's just part of what we do now, uh, or what or some people do, I suppose, if you're in the Internet. Um, but I was reading a blog post because I was very bothered about, um, you know, as a school teacher, as a, a person that interacts with young people, I get to interact with a lot of different kinds of young people. And maybe, maybe people that I don't really think are being raised correctly. Uh, and, um, and I know it's not my job to raise them. They're not my children. But as long as they're in my classroom uh, and under my influence, I'm going to tell them what I think. Uh, and, and so I do tell them. You know, um, there's nothing to be ashamed of uh, in being manly. Uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of about being a boy and being a man, uh, being the right kind of man, being the right kind of boy. Yes, you need to concentrate on that. You need to train yourself uh, on how to. And so I'm, I'm reading up on uh, manhood <laughs> and I'm reading a blog on a great uh, a website. Maybe not every part of it's great, but part of it was just fascinating. I just stumbled across uh, The Strenuous Life uh, by uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And he was, the, the author of this blog post just went through his daily routine. And it was, it was dizzying uh, what Theodore Roosevelt did every day just to keep himself uh, mentally and physically fit. And just, he just was always looking for an adventure. He's very spontaneous. And uh, I just was fascinated by that. So I came back for more and I'm reading it. And they just happened to do... Uh, a blog post on church and men in church and and why is there more ladies in church than there are men and they were trying to really get to the bottom of this phenomenon and you'll see this if you'll you'll start to notice it uh, even among primitive baptist churches a lot of times there's far more lady members than there are men members and so i i was interested by that i said well, you know i wonder what they've got to say and that's some very good things to say uh about why uh, that men, and we won't go into it, but why men aren't uh, particularly attracted to church sometimes. Bottom line is because they got too many hobbies. Uh, but uh, well, that's another story. But they said one of the things is men are mission-oriented. And we are there on a mission, and we want to go to church, and we want to we wanna do the songs and get right to the preaching and then go home. And so they suggested that they stop being these lengthy prayer request times and they stop having these lengthy prayers because that was driving men away from the house of God. And I stopped reading because I thought to myself, Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer. If it's anything, if we're not doing anything else here, if, look, if you don't have a preacher, some churches go through periods of time without a preacher. And sometimes there's nobody there to lead a singing and nobody's willing to lift up their voice in song. But I have heard about churches that have met in those circumstances and all they could do was have an hour of prayer and that's all they did. And I think the Lord smiled on that. 
I think the Lord was pleased with that. We are going to pray for one another. And we're going to lift each other up in prayer, not only because he commanded us to, but because it's a powerful thing to have an entire church begging and asking the Lord on someone else's behalf for some favor that they might need. You know, I may not be on speaking terms with the Lord, but you might. And you might be on speaking terms. He might be listening to you and he's ignoring me. And so that's why it's important to pray for each other, because at any given time, he may not be talking to you, but he's talking to your neighbor. And if you'll ask your neighbor to talk to him for you, maybe he'll listen to your neighbor. That's why I ask little children to pray for me, because they haven't lived long enough to mess up their lives as much as I've messed up my life. They don't have the track record with the Lord that I've got with the Lord. They don't, they haven't uh, made the mistakes that I've made and gotten on bad terms with the Lord as far as fellowship goes. And I know that their faith is pure and I know he's listening to them. So please, little child, pray for Brother John. And I mean it when I say it. I, I, it's not a platitude with me. I want you to, especially when we're in the house of God, lift up my name to the Lord and I'll do the same for you. I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me. We'll pray for each other. And maybe one of them will stick. And I'm going to tell you something. If one of them does stick, if he does listen to one of our prayers, or if he listens to two or three of our prayers and he answers it with a yes, we're in for a exciting experience. And I don't mean to sound that uh, uh, denominational, uh, but I'm saying when the Spirit of God does attend worship service with you, isn't it better than if he doesn't? And it's not a foregone conclusion with me if he's going to show up. I ask him, meet with me there, Lord. Meet with them there. If not for my sake, for the Lord's people's sake, for your people's sake, please meet with us. Bless me to be able to preach. Bless them to be able to understand. Lift us up. Glorify your name. Use your servant. Pick me up and shake me like a reed in the wind. Use me like a hammer or a feather. Whatever it needs to be. Whatever I need to say. Don't let me get in the way. And just put on a demonstration of your spirit. So we're going to pray. If you recall, the first meeting, the first church meeting that ever existed, they continued in prayer. It was one of the things that they did, and we take our example from them. They also continued in fellowship and in breaking of bread. In fellowship and breaking of bread, I, I was one time invited to speak in, uh, I won't tell you where it was because he's, <laughs> if I told you where it was, you'd figure out who this was. And I don't want it to, to reflect on him at all because I, I, it was a great experience. So this man calls me out of the blue. I don't know who he is. I've never met him. He says, uh, Brother John, and he put on this long, sad story about how no preachers will come and visit us. We're kind of out in the way. We're kind of an outpost. and We've been listening to you on the Internet. And we, we just really want you to come and speak to us. If you could find it in your heart, and I know you're going to have to take a day off of work, but it would just really mean a lot to us. And, and he just went on and on and on. And I said, well, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Um, so I'm making my way up there, and I ran into traffic. And after that traffic jam, then there was another traffic jam. And it was, another, it was just one traffic jam after another. 
and I'm running behind and my cell phone is running out of juice and I don't have a charger, but I don't have enough time to pull off to the side of the road and get a charger and the GPS is the only thing that's tethering me to this address. I have no idea where I'm going and it runs out of juice about, I don't know, probably five miles from where I was going. And so I, it left me side of the road asking people, strangers, have you ever heard of this church? Do you know these people? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's down the road. So I finally get there and I'm all and I'm in a tizzy because I had to dress in the car. I thought I was going to have enough time to dress at a gas station, but I had to dress in the car and put my tie on. And I get out of the I get out of the car and, and I. He said church starts at seven. And I got there at seven oh five. And he pulled up beside me and got out of his car nonchalantly and started adjusting his tie and putting on his tie just like he wasn't in a big hurry. And uh and there was kids running around in the in the lot and what is going on here? You know, and, and there was people just standing around talking. You know, usually when it's church back home, come in the building. But it's it's already five, seven minutes past the time that he said church started. And then somebody came out of the church holding a supper plate and they were eating. So I entered the church building and nobody was in there. And I go on back to the lunchroom and they're just now sitting. People are still in line getting their plates. And it dawned on me that he counted the fellowship hour as church. He didn't separate it and say, we're going to have supper at seven and church is going to start at eight. In his mind, church started at 7 because fellowship started at 7. And I thought, what a refreshing perspective on the act of worship through fellowship. That it truly is, it is part of our worship. It was part of their worship. They continued in fellowship in a breaking of bread. And I think it's very important that we sit down and have a meal uh, together. That it's not just standing around talking, but it's on purpose sitting down and sharing a meal with someone of like precious faith, it forces you to slow down long enough to get to know them and to ask them questions about their life and what they're going through and to have them do the same to you. It happened tonight. I got to know some people that I don't know very well. We asked questions of one another and got to know each other, and it was a, a wonderful fellowship a time in the Lord. It made me uh, looking forward to uh, this part of the worship service even more so than I already was looking forward to it. So fellowship, should you cut out dinner on the grounds? I, I, I hope to God that you never do. No, no matter if it's just a, a small thing, if you can just, you know, bring a bowl of fruit and eat it together. But I, do, I, I will say that churches in the South, oh boy, I tell you what, the, the <laughs> fellowship hour is very tasty, isn't it? I'm, I'm telling you what, I've, I've been in some places, well, anyway. Uh, so they continued in fellowship and in, uh, in the breaking of bread. And we also signify, and my uncle taught me this, I, I never, you know, we shake hands. And uh, in the book of Galatians, when the Apostle Paul was converted, uh, perhaps born again, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, when he has his experience, he's in Jerusalem. And the Bible says he's recounting the experience in Galatians chapter 2. And he says, when Cephas and James and John, uh, I think that's Peter and James and John, 
when they perceived that the Spirit of God was upon me, they gave me the right hands of fellowship. In other words, uh, they welcomed me into their fellowship by shaking my hand. And it may seem a small thing to you, but I'm going to shake your hand and I'm going to give you a hug. Uh, COVID taught me that. I did not realize how much I missed shaking hands with people until COVID hit and I couldn't shake hands with anybody and I was told not to hug anybody because I could possibly kill them. And that was really a reality. So we didn't. We just hold up in our houses. Nobody touched each other. Did you miss it? I missed it. I didn't didn't realize how bad I was going to miss it until it was gone. So part of our worship is shaking hands and fellowshipping and breaking bread and speaking to one another. Which brings me to my next point. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in our heart to the Lord. That's, uh, I believe, Ephesians chapter 5. Another part of our worship that you'll notice as a primitive Baptist that's unique uh, is that we sing. We don't play, we sing. And let me address why we don't play. Because there was playing in the Old Testament, and you've often heard that. Some people will say, well, what about David? He played, and uh, there were some players in the Old Testament that played. Valid, uh, valid points. But let's just uh, let's just read, if you will, in Hebrews chapter eight, I think it is. And I don't I don't want to misquote it, so I'm just going to read it to you real simply. It's this: In that he saith a new covenant. Last verse: He hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now, that's more complicated than it sounds, because does he mean that he did away with the entire Old Testament? I struggled with that for a long time, because the new has made the first old. This is the New Testament. He's made the first testament, which is the Old Testament, the Old Testament. And since it's the Old Testament, it has decayed and waxed old and is ready to vanish away. And here we are, fast forward 2,000 years, and guess what? It has vanished away. There is not a temple in Jerusalem, and nobody is still sacrificing sheep and goats, not in mass. Uh, there may be one or two people here and there that do it, but nobody is farming turtle doves for the poor uh, to come and sacrifice to the Lord. Nobody's doing that anymore. There's not, an, there's not a, an industry for that because there's not enough people to do it. So indeed, it has waxed old and vanished away. But does that mean that the entire Old Testament is null and void? We know that's not true. We know that thou shalt not kill is just as valid today as the day that it was written and the stone tables by God's finger on Mount Sinai. We know that thou shalt not commit adultery is just as valid today. So what makes the difference between thou shalt not kill and playing a harp in the worship service? Where, where is the dividing line on that? And, and how do we make a determination? Is, is that part, the old part, and is, can vanish away and, and we're going to keep this part? How do you make that determination? Is it, yes, it's very simple. There is, there is an eternal moral law of God. And it doesn't matter whether it appears in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It stands the test of time. It's just as good because it's an eternal uh, principle of truth. But then there's also ceremonial, uh, temporary ceremonial law that's also contained in the Old Testament. But it's it's ceremony and it's how worship was to take place. And 
the reason that it was taking place has also changed. They were worshiping before Jesus. We're worshiping after Jesus. And there's a big change after Jesus, isn't there? Before Jesus and after Jesus, the world has completely changed. And God has changed the way that he accepts worship on behalf of Jesus in the New Testament after Jesus. So there's the there's the eternal moral law of God that's contained in the Old and the New Testament. But then there's also the ceremonial law of God. And it was temporary. It was a placeholder until we got to the New Testament, until we got to Jesus. Post-Jesus, we're never, not once, commanded to play. After Jesus comes on the scene, you'll never find in the New Testament where he ever commands any of his children to play. You'll never find any of God's children worshiping with instruments in the New Testament. And since we claim to be a New Testament church, I think it's good and fitting that we do what the Apostle Paul says, and that is singing, making melody in our heart unto the Lord, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. By the way, if you're holding back because you don't like your voice or you think somebody else doesn't like your voice, stop it. Speaking to one another, you are encouraging each other in your song. And the sound of your voice is encouraging. We can hear each other. And the sound of your voice, if you speak the same words as I do in song, doesn't matter what it sounds like. It's encouraging to me, and I know it's encouraging to you. And, and by the way, you're singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. You're not singing for each other. You're singing for the Lord. And I want it to be pretty. I like it when the singing's pretty, but it don't have to be. I remember one, uh, one sister I pastored one time. She, without seeing everybody in the congregation, sat right up front. If the tape player was on, that's the only voice you could hear on the tape. And, buddy, she couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. But I would have fought you if you would have told her to stop singing. It was the sweetest sound in the world because she was, it was just bubbling out of her. She couldn't help it. And if you don't like any of those justifications for why we sing, how about this one? Try this one on for size. In Hebrews chapter 2, he tells us that, now this is Jesus talking. He's saying, for this cause, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. How about that? Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or, your, or his sister. For this cause, he's not ashamed to call us brethren, saying, in the midst of the congregation will I sing praise unto thee. Jesus said he was going to sing, and not just sing, but he would sing in the midst of the congregation, which is church. Well, I think if Jesus is singing and not playing, he could have played. He's the one that invented music. He invented musical instruments, gave us the mind to be able to invent those things. And if he wanted to play, he could have played. But instead, he chooses to sing in the midst of the congregation. And not only that, if you think that's just a quotation from the Old Testament, he actually put it into practice. At the Last Supper, when Jesus Christ is dismissing his disciples from the Last Supper, again, he could have brought any instrument in the world he wanted to to that supper and taught them how to play it. But instead of doing that, he says that they, meaning all of them, himself included, they sung a hymn and went out. They sung a hymn. Jesus chose to sing a hymn and dismiss his disciples before he's crucified. Now, I don't know if you can argue with that. If you can, I'd be my guest. But it sounds pretty strong to me, doesn't it? 
have nothing wrong. I have no, uh, I have nothing against anybody who wants to play instruments and worship the Lord on their own, playing musical instruments. Got no problem with musicians who use their musical abilities to praise the Lord with their music and with their musical instruments. I just have a problem with it in corporate worship. And do you know why I think I have a problem with it? Not only because of all the things I just said, but but I think I think this is this is why because even the smallest among us can sing. Even people that have no ability at all, no musical ability at all, can't read notes, don't know what notes are. They can sing. It's just in humans. We can sing. One of the sweetest sounds in the world is my little five-year-old John Henry. He just walks around singing. When he gets happy, he sings. When he's eating something he likes, he starts singing to himself while he's eating. He's just singing along. The point is, even children can sing. All of God's children that are aware that they're children, they can lift up their voice. Not not all of us can play. I've been trying to play a guitar for 20 years, and I know four chords. <laughs> and even them, not very good. But I can sing just about every, every verse of every song in that book. Y'all let me say that I can sing. Maybe I can't sing, but it, <laughs> I'd like to try anyway. And then the last, of course, is preaching. I was at uh, I was at somebody's house, and again there was this preacher there that just I mean he just intimidated. I don't know if you know this, but preachers can intimidate other preachers. Brother Phil knows what I'm talking about. There there are some preachers that they're just so gifted, their mind is so large in the scriptures that you really just don't even want to talk around. Them. You know, you just you're afraid to say something wrong, so you just. Mm-hmm. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Just let them do all the talking and, and just pray and get out of there without making a mistake. So I was late to the party and there was about 15 of them sitting up on this porch, preachers. And there he there he sat. And uh, when I walked up on the porch, uh, one of the other preachers says, well, go ahead and ask him your question. <laughs> Man. <laughs> and he looked at me dead in the eyes and he said, Brother John. I don't want you to answer right away. I want you to think for a long time before you ever give the answer. Oh, great. One of those. <laughs> he said, don't just think for a long time before you ever answer my question. Define. He said, you're a preacher, aren't you? And I said, sure. He goes, well, then don't you think you ought to know what you're doing? I said, yes. He said, well, then define it. I said, what? He said, define preaching. Yeah. Well, he said, ah, don't start. Think about it. I said, I don't need to think about it. I think I got it. He goes, oh, okay, go ahead. And the rest of them were like, whoa. <laughs> I said, I think I got it. You know, first of all, you have to have, first of all, what's unique is that we're not going to tell you stories. We're not going to give you uh, poems. We're not going to. Uh, unfold something that we printed off the internet and read it to you or tell you what we think or what we feel or what we believe what we should be doing is preach the word be instant in season out of season reprove rebuke exhort correct with all long suffering and doctrine that's what the apostle paul told timothy to do 
was not to try to impress people with your intellect, but to simply just preach the word, the unadulterated word of God. Read what it says. Tell us what it means. Let's all say amen and go home. It's really not much more complicated than that. So you have to have the proper source. The proper source, of course, is the word of God. And then you have to have the proper uh, conduit through which it comes. You know, not everybody can preach. There are some qualifications for preachers in the in the scriptures. And I'll let your preacher tell you all about those qualifications. But there are some people that have disqualified themselves. And even if they had a gift to preach, they should no longer be preaching because they've disqualified themselves. They no longer meet the qualifications of being a minister. For instance, if you have four wives... You have disqualified yourself from preaching the word of God to congregations. Uh, you, we're not polygamists. And so if you say that you've got four wives, well, you're disqualified. I'm sorry. Um, there are, I, I'm using an extreme to make a point. But the number one qualification is that you be called of God. That you not just think it's a good idea or that you not just think that you want to do it. But it's something that you feel obligated to do from the Lord. You feel like you're not going to be able to live another day. It's like Jeremiah said. It's like fire shut up in your bones. And the brethren that I'm speaking to that have been called to preach, you know exactly what he was talking about when he said that. I remember when I, I felt called to preach, I didn't know who to tell or how to go about it. I just knew it was going to happen. I had no way to describe it. I had no way to... To, to, I didn't know how to do it. Uh, I, I, I didn't even know what the books in the Bible were. I just felt like it's what the Lord wanted me to do. And I set about trying to do it the best way that I knew how. You've got to have a God called man. He's got to be preaching from the word of God. And then it's these verses that I tried to quote to you this morning. Um, this is what it is. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with the excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not in, with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Something coming from Paul. I know Paul spoke two languages, at least, possibly three. He was raised at the foot of Gamaliel, who was, in his time, one of the greatest philosophers that was living. You might as well consider, you could substitute and say he was a disciple of Plato. He was a disciple of Socrates. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel would be equivalent to sitting at the feet of Socrates and Plato. Of course, you've heard of those fellows. So for him to say on purpose, I didn't come to you with the enticing words of man's wisdom. The implication is I could have, but I didn't. Or of man's wisdom. I've got a lot of man's wisdom, but I didn't use any of it. I simply preached to you about Jesus Christ and him crucified and then let the Spirit of God do the rest. And the Spirit of God came in a power and in demonstration. And what that means 
is that when I get, and this is what I told that fellow, I said, I don't, I can't really describe it to you, but I know when I've been there. I know it when I feel it. I know it when I see it. I know when I've heard preaching. And I know when I've done preaching. But I can't really go back and retroactively describe it to anybody because it's a supernatural feeling. It's a supernatural experience. It's not natural. It doesn't naturally occur in the earth. And it doesn't naturally occur anywhere but in the house of God. Where do you find preachers preaching the word of God? It's going to be in the house of God. They're usually not anywhere else doing it. Uh, they're usually in front of a congregation who has assembled themselves to hear it. And they want to be there. And so that's why I say it's so important to uh, come to church because you're not going to experience that anywhere else more likely than not. Uh, but it's in power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit that we preach. So that what would happen? There's a goal here. So that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in God. When I've left preaching before, either when I've, I've actually done it or when I've, when I've heard it, I'm amazed. I am amazed. I'm amazed when I've I feel like I've been the conduit because I think to myself, there's no way. I, how did I, what just happened? <laughs> how did that happen? I know I didn't, I didn't manufacture that. That didn't come from me. That came from God. Praise the Lord. And the same thing. We were talking about this at lunch. I've known ministers. You know, when you know a minister personally, we're all a mess. <laughs> None of us have it all together. We're just all, we've all got quirks and weird little ticks and things that we do. And it's just, if the rest of you knew any of it, you probably wouldn't come here at one of us. <laughs> we, we're a mess. Uh, I'm, I'm so absent-minded, I, I can't remember where I, I, I've gotten lost going home before. <laughs> I just, I'm just off of la-la land all the time. So how do I remember anything? It's amazing to me. And uh, the preachers that I've known that have preached, and I thought to myself, okay, there's no other explanation than the Lord was with him. There's no other way he could have just done that, because I know who he is and what he's about, and that was not him. That was from the Lord. And it's on purpose that way. I think it's on purpose that way. I think the Lord uses broken vessels who are just a mess so that you don't think that they're doing it. You have to be convinced that if they preach in power and demonstration of the Lord, it came from the Lord. And your faith is in them. I'm sorry, your faith is in him and your faith is not in them or their abilities. That's what sets the church apart. We're not manufacturing preachers. We're not trying to make preachers. We're not telling them how to look and how to dress and how to talk. That's between them and the Lord. And every gift is unique. But if a man is called to preach, and he does preach, you won't miss it. It'll be obvious, because the Spirit of God will be there. and energize his gift, lift him up, and lift you up with him. So there are four acceptable modes of New Testament worship. There's fellowship, there's prayer, there's singing, and there's preaching. And it's really just that simple. Simplicity of the gospel. God bless you, my friend.